Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc, researcher, yada, yada. And Santosh, I don't want to make any rash decisions today. Oh, this is going to be these puns all day, (laughs) isn't it? Oh, is Uh, this something that's going to get under your skin? No, uh, just introduce the guest before my head explodes. (laughs) (laughs) Our guest today has a lot of layers, or at least deals with them. (laughs) (laughs) yeah as in she's a complex person stop it (laughs) you guys this is the derm episode and so may i introduce our dermatologist dr ritika yay hello hello. she's a graduate of our alma mater rosalind franklin medical school she is also a graduate of um the uh, dermatology residency program at university of michigan ann arbor is that correct yes uh huh, and an accomplished researcher at that same site, and now she's a practicing dermatologist in Los Angeles. Perfect! Yay! That was accurate. <laughs> <laughs> All of those things are factual. So, dermatology, which for those of you playing along at home, is a specialty focused on the diagnosis and management of diseases affecting the skin, hair, and nails, uh, goes back quite a long time. It's one of the older specialties of medicine, practiced all the way back in, hey, Santosh, you want to guess? Uh, oh, this is going to be one of your favorites. Is it Egyptian times? It Ancient is Egyptian, Egyptian times. Like, But even pre-Pharaonic, from what you told me, like even before there were big like pyramids and whatnot. Yeah. So Egyptians already, we've talked in the past about how they used uh, the uric acid from bird excrement 
and mixed other things into the coal under their eyes. But as a medical specialty, it dates back at least to the Ptolemaic dynasty. And interestingly, it's a specialty in which women have always stood out. And while nobody knows for sure when the first official field was developed, in ancient Egypt, some procedures were already in existence, like the use of arsenic for skin cancer. And the one prominent female dermatologist we knew back in the day, I mean, not us personally, but uh, <laughs> was Cleopatra, who, uh, who wrote a treatise called Cosmetics, devoted to the pursuit of beauty and skincare that also had a lot of interesting health tips. So, Rithika, did you know that you had a lineage stretching back to Cleopatra? No, I didn't. And that is awesome. I want to be Dr. Cleopatra now. <laughs> so let me mention one or two things that she had in this treatise, and then you can tell us whether or not she was close, accurate, or just so far off the mark that you're recoiling in horror. Okay. Um, so one of the things Cleopatra was known for was sour milk immersion bath. From that standpoint, they're saying the benefits of lactic acid for skin hydration, as well as the concept of hair removal, the hair removal ritual with a formula comprised of sugar, oil, lime juice, and prayers to, I believe, Thoth or Horus, one of them. Essentially an ancient Egyptian chemical peel, which... I believe are still done by some dermatologists today. There's also a couple fragments about treatments for alopecia and other skin disorders, which I'll talk about in a moment. But what do you think so far just about the, the sour milk immersion baths and the ancient Egyptian chemical peel? Are those things that would be used in a medical or a clinical setting? That's actually really awesome. And I did not know that. Um, so... Kudos to Cleopatra, because seriously, we still do use lactic acid um, and other types of acids in chemical peels. So that's really cool. And in fact, you can find um, lactic acid based lotions over the counter. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to like name names, like brand names and stuff here. But um, Amlactin, for example, if you've ever heard of Amlactin lotion that you can mm -hmm. buy over the counter, well, guess what its active ingredient is? It's lactic acid. So Cleopatra was right on the nose with um, her sour milk uh, lactic acid bath. Not necessarily for hydrating the skin, but absolutely for doing basically a little microdermabrasion or a peeling effect to get rid of that dead, dull skin and then reveal more youthful, new, glowing skills, uh, skin. Sorry. So good job, Cleopatra, for sure. Sour milk as you mentioned, contains lactic acid, a naturally occurring alpha hydroxy acid. And after this, she was copied by the Greeks and the Romans, although they ended up using some corrosive agents like limestone to get the same result. Oh, oh, oh my God. This <laughs> is spartanly painful. <laughs> so this was like a scrub. This was trying to like get the extra layers off. As best as can be described in the Ebers papyrus. Nice. And it and that's also used like um, citric acids are definitely also used for more intense chemical peels. So they just oh. yeah, they one up her. That's fine. They one up her. So, <laughs> what would you use a chemical peel for clinically? Is that something that you've done? 
I have done it. Um, clinically, let's see, uh, you know, basically when it comes to dermatology, we're always dealing with whether you're talking about medical dermatology or cosmetic dermatology. And I'm primarily now in practice medical dermatologist, but I have had cosmetic training. So clinically, um, for me, that means am I applying a chemical peel for any medical condition? And so the answer to that really is... No, because it's just chemical peels aren't covered by your insurance. However, what you can use chemical peels for are acne. You can use it for hyperpigmentation, melasma, um, and just for getting more youthful skin. So just completely cosmetically just to get rid of your dead skin and have more youthful glowing skin. Nice. Mm -hmm. So all the way back to ancient Egypt, I was so excited. Uh, I almost missed another fine moment in historical dermatology, which is, of course, around 18th century France. Santosh, if you've ever seen pictures of French nobles from that time, most of them all share at least one common physical feature. Do you want to take a guess what it was? They're so pale. <laughs> okay, They're so two. white. They shared two common physical all, features. I think it was all the tuberculosis. Okay, three. Three <laughs> common physical features. Tuberculosis isn't always a physical feature, though. If you had to picture a bunch of French nobles and royalty, what else are you thinking? They were kind of made up. They had the big puffy wigs. Yeah, the puffy yeah. wigs. Um, um, that was a wig. That wasn't their real hair, right? And yeah. the beauty spot. Oh, the beauty! Oh, oh the little. I thought it was just a Cindy Crawford thing. Oh, oh no, no, it was way no, before no, no. that. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about the beauty. You're right. They they put it on the cheek, right? It looked like a little mole. Yeah. So to achieve a beauty spot when one didn't occur naturally, people wore false ones made from velvet and stuck it onto their face. And you were right; they were pale because the whole point is that the darkness of the beauty spot would set off the paleness of your skin and the luster and the vermilion of your eyes, uh, making them look more lively and amorous per Le Camus, The Art of Preserving Beauty. However, it could also look super similar to a medical plaster or oh. syphilitic scars. Oh. So uh, the adoption of this French fashion, because a lot of the nobles were picking it up before it was cool, and wearing these patches. And then the common people saw the nobles adopting this new apparent fashion trend of wearing dark beauty spots. And then they started adopting it and it became a fashion issue. So they became available from perfumeries, made from expensive colored fabrics. Uh, but also at the same time that they were luxury status symbols, they also were known stigmata of flirtation, licentious behavior, and treatment of a venereal disease. So nice. Wow. <laughs> interesting, so wait, uh, interesting I mean, dichotomy there. It, it was, it was like a, Hey, I'm available and I'm DTF of the, <laughs> of the like pre-revolution French world. Ah, scratch left, scratch left. Oh, gross. <laughs> of course, we've talked in the past about some of the skin manifestations of syphilis, but there's a lot of at least on the surface skin diseases that are not quite as serious but can still change your cosmetic appearance i know we mentioned one earlier was acne 
And I think you also mentioned melasma. What are some of the more common skin conditions that may alter your appearance, but do not pose any kind of danger to your health? Oh, rosacea is a big one. Acne, seborrheic dermatitis, which is basically dandruff, but you can get dandruff on your face and it shows. Seborrheic keratoses, you can get a bunch of those on your face. And again, those are what people call barnacles um, on the ship of life, like just these random uh, crusty growths that can occur, occur on your face. And they're people, totally benign. Mm-hmm. People can get barnacles? Yes, Josh. What? Like, what? like, non, like non-pirates? <laughs> yes, you do not have to be a pirate to get a barnacle. Wait, wait, wait. Are, are they barnacles like, these aren't barnacles like mollusks. Yar. They can certainly look like them. They can get really big and gnarly and crusty oh my and gross. Um, but yeah, so they're called separate keratosis. It's quite hilarious because they really do mimic um, everything we warn you about with respect to melanoma. So we tell you, hey, if something's getting large and dark and crusty and bleeding and growing, you better come in and get it checked out. But like 99 times out of 100, it's actually a separate keratosis. But I still definitely commend each patient that comes in for their separate keratosis because you should still come in just to make sure that it isn't a skin cancer because you don't know, but I know. <laughs> but separate keratosis, that's a really interesting lesion that brings a lot of patients in and it can happen on your face and it can be really concerning up until the point you see the dermatologist and they're like, what? Why are you worried about this? People barnacles. Yes. <laughs> that have to be ruled out as cancerous growths. And in just a couple minutes, we'll have you take us through the ABCDs of should I be concerned? Okay, sure. But a couple other fun historical figures, and then we can get into the actual real medicine and science. One of the founding fathers of the field of dermatology was Robert Willen, a Quaker uh, who lived from 1750s ish to 1812, and he identified eight different categories of skin disease. Uh, papilla, I'm going to mispronounce a bunch of these, so just sorry in advance. <laughs> uh, papilla, squama, exanthemata, bulla, pustula, vesicula, tubercula, and macula. Well, that sounded perfect. That's nice. Right, that was, that was yeah. straight on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because those those all have um, modern equivalents right now. Yeah, absolutely. So, and scientific dermatology began in 1801 when the old hospital St. Louis in Paris was officially dedicated to the exclusive treatment of cutaneous diseases as classified earlier by Willen with Jean-Louis Alibert at its head, who got the position after he helped to popularize the cure of scabies by a sulfur vapor and fumigating cabinet. Like, you know when you tent somebody's house for termites? He just locked people up in one of those old-timey, like, 1920s cartoonish-era spas, or so I picture, and filled it with arsenic vapor or mercury vapor or sulfur to cure scabies. That is awesome. <laughs> well, this... I wish I could do that now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you don't. <laughs> because nowadays we actually have like, you know, non-toxic 
you know, suffocating and smothering treatments, uh, as well as, you know, slightly toxic, but not as toxic as arsenic type of treatments. Arsenic was such a good go-to because arsenic is just poisonous for all life. A lot of dermatology kind of sprang out of these sorts of things, like either very irritating skin diseases like scabies or very long-term disfiguring ones like syphilis. And uh, that's where a lot of the advances in the field initially came from, dealing both with the skin manifestations of syphilis and the results of mercury treatment. Uh, However, it has long since advanced beyond that point to as you mentioned, Dr. Ritika, uh, both cosmetic and medical. So let's get into a little bit more of what you do. What's the most common reason that patients are usually referred to you now? I get a lot of patients. I guess the bulk of my day is going to be acne, eczema, psoriasis, skin cancer. That would be kind of most of my day, but um, definitely I get uh, lots of cases of connective tissue disease. So like lupus or dermatomyositis, all that good stuff. Now, when you're trying to identify skin cancer, a long time ago in medical school, they taught us the, the ABCDs of things to be concerned about. Do you still use that mnemonic or have you long since specialized beyond that? So, hmm, okay, so we still use it, but we use it more as advice for the lay people um, to just kind of give them an idea. But medically, that is not what I am using to diagnose something as a skin cancer. However, you know, if you're out there and you don't have any skin knowledge at all, the ABCDE is a good mnemonic for kind of bringing you into your doctor's office. So yeah, I mean, sorry, convoluted answer. But yeah, basically, we kind of still use it. Um, And so ABCDE would be A for asymmetry. So if you've got a mole that's not perfectly circle, and it's asymmetric, you know, it should kind of raise your um, eyes a bit in suspicion. B is border irregularity. So again, if it's just not like a nice smooth border, if it's got some fuzzy borders or some jagged edges. Um, C is for color. Um, So that means more like a color variation. So if it's not just one like homogenous brown, if it's kind of like a little speck of black, a little speck of white, a little speck of dark brown, you want to kind of look at that a little bit more suspiciously. D is diameter. And so that's uh, basically if it's larger than six millimeters, which is the size of um, the eraser on a number two pencil, which who uses that anymore? But Oh, no, but that's perfect. Yeah. That's kind of, that's nice to think about. Um, yeah. I can also say if you have an average sized hand, yeah. the width of your pinky is usually about a centimeter. Oh. Okay, that's cool to know. And then E is the most important one. Um, And so a lot of times people say the ABCDs of melanoma, but it's really ABCDE. And E is the most important one, which is evolving or evolution. So a mole that is changing. And so um, that is really what you really need to look out for. If your mole kind of looked one way a month ago, and now like, you know, a month later, it looks a little bit different. So that's a mole that's changing. Why the heck is your mole changing? You should come in and get that checked out. So to me, out of the ABCDs, 
ease. Um, e is the most important. The other guys, you know, maybe you just make funky looking moles. And sometimes that happens that all your moles look funky. But if one mole looks more funky than the rest, you want to have that guy checked out. I will give a uh, quick reminder to all of our medical professionals who are listening. Um, no one's going to do a better skin exam than someone like Dr. Rithika. But all of you guys, when you're doing a history and a physical and you're examining your patients, please, you know, undress to the point, not you, undress your patient to, you know, to, <laughs> to a reasonable extent, depending on what they're in there for. Um, but especially if they're coming in for a full physical, check out all of their skin, because especially in darker skinned individuals, you do want to note all of these. Um, and, you know, nowadays we have great electronic medical record technology, you know, take a picture um, and, yeah. and keep it there as part of the record. Um, but don't forget your integumentary uh, physical exam while you're doing your annual physicals or your routine health checks. Check out everything, especially the, the spots that the patient cannot see on their own, because that's the, that's the major places to look. And before you do that, I'm sure, Rithika, you'll tell us, um, always wear your gloves. Yes, of course. Can you give a couple of examples of stuff that you can catch if you, you know, just decide to touch a rash without putting a glove on? Just oh. to scare them. <laughs> just to scare them. <laughs> Welcome to uh, Travel Medicine, Scared Straight. <laughs> so definitely scabies is something you can potentially catch. Um, and so when a patient walks in with a really, really itchy rash, they don't know that they have scabies and you don't know if they have <laughs> until you kind of get the history and do the exam. So absolutely always you want to use your gloves when examining a patient. You can um, catch warts um, as well. And so again, sometimes warts mimic these barnacles that I was telling you guys about. It would be When will people stop <laughs> kissing toads? Exactly. <laughs> so what's, what's the rest of the derm exam once you have your protective barriers on so you don't pick up anything extra to take home onto your skin yeah um what what's a typical derm exactly and so i start off at the scalp for i mean i guess let's just say i'm doing a, a screening skin exam where i'm just kind of screening for anything i'm looking at the scalp um completely and i'm looking at the scalp for moles you can get moles in your scalp looking for any kind of rashes in the scalp, uh, sometimes assessing like your hair um, itself, like the growth, um, the growth pattern, etc. And a full skin exam. So I'm looking at the face. I'm always looking behind the ears, in the ear, trunk, extremities. I'm looking at the palms and the soles. I'm looking in between your fingers and in between your toes. Yeah, yeah, you want to look everywhere. And you want to <laughs> check the genital and the buttocks area as well honestly looking you head to toe literally it so turns out there's a lot of places that the sun don't shine it's a very it's a very vague threat <laughs> and you can get skin cancer where the sun don't shine so a lot of people think that, oh, you don't really need to look at my butt because <laughs> the sun, but your butt can get skin cancer. So we should look at it. So those of you in committed relationships, check each other's butts often and with care. 
<laughs> there used to be a thing actually called it uh, when we were in the Midwest and you'd go to places like Branson, Missouri. They'd call it um, a hillbilly romance. You do that where you'd actually, you know, you'd go out hiking in something and then you'd search each other for ticks when you got home. <laughs> I love your is, growing up in the Midwest stories. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a. Uh, I mean, it's an important thing. That's another time where, you know, you should check each other out is, um, you know, when you've been out in the wilderness to get rid of other arthropods, because um, you definitely don't want to keep those ticks on. The quicker you remove them, the less chance they have to transmit infections. This is all very true. I love it. <laughs> so there's, as you mentioned a bit earlier, Ritika, there's two large branches of dermatology, cosmetic and medical. Um, you said you're primarily which kind of dermatologist? Medical. Do you ever need to do things like Botox or dermabrasion, laser surgery, uh, or liposuction? Do any of those come up in your workday or no? That's mostly just for the cosmetic side. That's mostly for the cosmetic side. Um, we do do Botox for some medical uh, conditions. So hyperhidrosis, right, which is basically having excessive sweating. So if you've got super sweaty palms, super sweaty armpits, we can actually inject Botox into your hands and into your armpits. To, and into your feet, your soles of your feet, to make you stop having excessive sweating there. So that is one way where Botox is actually used um, more in the medical field and not just to, you know, fix your wrinkles. Chemical peels, although I'm not doing them in my practice, I do suggest them to, you know, my acne, melasma, hyperpigmentation patients. We kind of sparingly do have a laser in our clinic, so we do kind of sparingly use it um, for interesting large moles on people's faces. And I'm when I say a large mole, I'm talking about something called a nevus of Oda or a nevus of Edo, which is a mole that kind of takes up your whole forehead, eyelid, cheek. So we have a laser that's kind of used for some really specific odd conditions. But in general, um, lasers are fantastic and they can be used for so many things, but it's just not covered by your insurance. So people who are interested in lasers, um, you know, and have certain conditions like rosacea, um, again, melasma, etc. I do tell them that, you know, if they can afford it, they should get a consultation with a laser dermatologist. So that's kind of how I manage these um, cosmetic things in my medical practice. So what made you choose dermatology as a field? Like what, what inspired you about skin over any of our other organs? Well, you know, you can actually see the disease, like with high blood pressure. It's not something you can, you're not walking around with a sign that says high blood pressure. And so sometimes a lot of people just aren't really motivated to treat their own high blood pressure because it's not something that they feel like is really impacting them every day. So when I did my dermatology rotation, I just felt that the patients were a bit more motivated to actually go through with the treatment. And um, obviously, you guys know, as physicians, it's really nice when your patients are compliant with... Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, Ooh, what's that like? You are not kidding. Oh, hush. No. <laughs> 
<laughs> so the oh, fact boy. that you know skin disease is a visible disease, um, it's really rewarding as a physician to kind of see something get treated in front of your eye. Um, rewarding to make your patient feel so much better. So that was one aspect of it. Um, the other thing was that in in a dermatology practice, just as a physician, you get to do so much um, because it is part clinical, part surgical, part pathology. Like every rotation I did, whether it was surgery or pathology, pediatrics, geriatrics, I liked everything. And so um, when I did derm, it was great because I'm not limited to just pediatrics or geriatrics. I get to see newborns to, you know, the 100 plus year olds in one day and um, get to do some surgery, get to do some pathology, prescription medications. Um, So it was just kind of a nice all of the above type of field for me. From ID standpoint, there are many times where um, you'll either have a dermatological sign as a uh, an indicator of a systemic illness. Um, so a lot of the rashes that we get, you know, measles is the really common one that's always quoted. Um, and we also get isolated lesions like cellulitis, bacterial cellulitis, where the uh, the infection is the dermatologic symptom. It's it's you know they they've got this perfect kind of overlap, but it's really really useful to have one of you guys who have such a kind of encyclopedic knowledge. Um, What's your relationship to um, pathology when you have to use other tools in order to differentiate what's causing a particular skin? What's my relationship to pathology? Are you talking about what I'm doing in my clinic or how I work with our pathology? Are you in pathology casually seeing each other? Are you really committed to doing your own path? Did you just have one crazy night with a microscope and a scalpel? (laughs) I appreciate monogamous relationships with pathologists, but unfortunately... Weirdo. (laughs) Um, That there are, you know, there are times in your practice either with an individual patient or when you're trying to learn about a new disease, that it's really, really valuable to have um, a, a good pathologist available to you so that you can do something like a biopsy and send it and be able to communicate with them to understand better what's going on. So absolutely, yeah, that is 100% accurate. We really rely um, heavily on our pathologist and especially our dermatopathologist um, to shedding light when we uh, really have a differential diagnosis and we really need the microscopic analysis to confirm or at least give us more evidence towards one diagnosis versus the other. And, um, and, you know, all the molecular testing that they do, uh, it really, it really is invaluable. And um, the dermatopathologists uh, are, are just an exceptional breed. And um, (laughs) it really like, it's great, because you can really tell when a pathologist has read your slide, and a dermatopathologist has read your slide, because a pathologist will just give you usually maybe two or three sentences and the dermatopathologist will give you two or three paragraphs. And, um, <laughs> and it's really, it's, you know, it's hilarious in one way because it is, it's, 
it's just so different. Um, but also it is like, you know, you would think that I would get this two to three paragraph sign out on one slide and think like, oh my God, why do I have to read all of this? But it's great. It's like um, you're salivating over this <laughs> two to three paragraphs long. You're like, yes, this is what yeah. I wanted to hear. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> so, well, and, and it also must yeah. be so cool when you're sitting there with your patient and you've got a, a strong differential in mind and then, you know, the path comes back and you're like, ha, I knew it. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's, again, it's very satisfying, very awesome um, because the dramatic yeah. pathologist will not just um, look at the slide itself in front of them. Like they will actually look at the history of the patient and maybe even dig in the medical record a little bit to really um, kind of help you delineate your own differential diagnosis and tell you why based on everything they think it's one rather than the other. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, really, really awesome. It's very awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Have you seen anything rare in your practice? Oh, I see rare things all the time. Is that? (laughs) (laughs) That's a, that's a paradox, (laughs) but it's fun. See, this is what specialists say. (laughs) It's like, yeah, yeah, we see rare things. Yeah, yeah, I mean, just just last week, I had a really cool case of necrobiosis lipoidica diabeticorum, which we now are trying to not say the diabeticorum part of it, but um, that is totally dermatology speak. Frequently in dermatology because it's the rare cases that end up getting consulted to us because nobody knew what to do with them. When I think rare, I think ones that can actually change your entire skin color top to bottom, but are not jaundice. So uh, things like Argyria, which is a silver-based one, turns you zombie gray, or (laughs) eating too many carrots and turning yourself orange. Uh, have you seen anything that's, like these or just that's the- gotta be out here in LA with all these like <laughs> supplement people? I mean, you are in the Los Angeles area. So <laughs> so in terms of just randomly changing your skin color, there are certain medications, just like how you mentioned with Argeria. Um, it's not just, you know, silver by itself as a, as a supplement or something. There are lots of other medications that are pretty commonly prescribed that can actually change your skin color. And so one of them is minocycline, for example, which is a pretty common antibiotic. It's like doxycycline's friend. And um, (laughs) that minocycline, minocycline can make you blue. And I don't mean sad, but maybe also blue. Actually, maybe I do mean both because once your skin turns blue, you, you pretty much will be blue about that. And then there are some other things where, you know, people will use these creams to lighten their skin, something called hydroquinone. Um, They'll try to use that to lighten their skin. And then lo and behold, it does exactly the opposite and creates like dark spots all over their skin when that's exactly what they were trying to get rid of. What about the carrots? (laughs) Have you ever seen anybody eat so many carrots they turn orange? (laughs) Okay, you got me there. I have not seen that, but I have heard of it. (laughs) I don't think carrots are that, you know, hot anymore. <laughs> it's, it's possible yeah, that, it in theory. It used to be all the rage. Yeah, all the rage before, but not anymore. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know what? We need to bring Bugs Bunny's, you know, vegetable and plant-based lifestyle back because <laughs> I want to see more people chowing down on carrots going, eh, what's up, Doc? I, I wouldn't mind it. Let's talk briefly about one or two fun journal articles. I'd love to get your take on some of the things that have come out in Skin News lately. What's What's been posting on Skin News? Popping up? Oh, come on. Just get on with it. <laughs> Fine. Uh, biosensor tattoos. A study was recently completed for applications that have uh, ink that changes color based on various health parameters. So a diabetic patient had a biosensor tattoo that told them their glucose levels changing between blue and brown. Then there was a sodium biosensor that could glow under UV light to inform the wearer when they were getting dehydrated. And uh, one for pH levels to just indicate general health for people who enjoy tracking their bio data. And this was all done as just kind of a pilot art and science study in between. But uh, what are your thoughts? What do you know about tattoos and bio tattoos? Wow, I had never heard about bio tattoos, and that sounds really fascinating. Um, the only thing is, if this is some novel, I mean, obviously, this is some novel tattoo that has some kind of um, chemical in it that is allowing the tattoo pigment to change in color based on whatever is going on in the body. Um, so they really should be careful about that because tattoos can cause reactions in the skin. So um, like something called granulomatous reactions to tattoo pigment. And so if this is not just a normal tattoo pigment and there's some other stuff kind of attached to the pigment to make it sense various compositions in your skin and then change color, um, I can see that creating a little allergic reaction. And so Sounds interesting, but uh, yeah, I would want some more longer term studies to make sure it doesn't actually create problems for the patients. So what do you know about how tattoos work uh, to begin with? I mean, certainly these, these would have to use different kinds of inks and methods to read, although the idea of having a tattoo that could show your glucose levels in a range as opposed to just having to do multiple finger pricks per day is probably really appealing to a large set of the population. The question is just how fast could it really respond? How fast is skin? <laughs> how fast is skin? Oh, Rithika, let me translate. Yeah. <laughs> how long do skin cells stick around before sh being shed and being replaced by new skin cells? Uh, how fast, how fast <laughs> that, is that, that's what I meant. How fast is skin? <laughs> it's, actually, um, it's actually a little bit different in each area of your body. Um, and so, but I guess the average would be between three and seven days, just depending on where you are, um, you know, on, on your body. Oh, gotcha. So which one turns over a little faster and which one's a little slower? It's kind of more about where you have um, more skin thickness and more skin thinness. And so 
Oh, God. so like palms and soles are palms really thick. Soles are really thick, yeah. And so you got a lot of skin shedding always from your palms and soles uh, because they're really um, thick areas of your skin. Um, but that that little skin cell just has a lot longer to travel um, in an area of thicker skin. Oh. Uh, traveling from like deep to shallow, or deep or to shallow from the, yeah, from the inside inside. Outside, inside. Yeah. As it's yeah, yeah. as it's Shawshanking its way to the surface. <laughs> That's such a weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As it's Andy Dufraining but itself. But accurate. Look. <laughs> That's so beautiful. Look, do you need me to explain the microscopic structure of skin to you, Santosh? Oh, please. Because I'll do God, it. No. I will do no. it. So <laughs> help me, I will tell you all about the stratum corneum. And it's flattened dead cells full of keratin and natural moisturizing factors. I I swear, I will come after you with talk of desmosomes and lipid matrixes. <laughs> I, I, re- I really, <laughs> please no. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about everything. Rithika, we did somewhere in the mists of time start out as a travel medicine podcast. Josh, remember when we were like that? Um, Back when people could travel, oh, the days. Yeah. So I, I know the, um, the, the good advice when people go out to travel to protect their skin from everything of like our insect repellents in order to protect their skin, you know, so that they don't get bitten up and sun protection. I know it's been kind of a hot topic lately. Um, can you give us a weigh-in on the reflective sun protection like titanium or zinc yes. versus the chemical sun protectants. Um, I I know that this is a contentious topic. I'm totally okay if you wanted to, you know, hedge or something like that. Oh, no, no, no. I super want to talk about this. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, everybody listen Okay, up. good. So, uh, so absolutely. Okay, so to, to bring it back to travel, 100% yes, um, whether you're traveling or whether you're not actually, you should be using sunscreen every day. But especially when you travel, you should be using sunscreen because you're obviously going to be spending way more time outdoor, way much more time outdoors um, than when you're not traveling. So 100% number one thing on your list of things to start packing is sunscreen. So when it comes to sunscreen, yeah, are you going to now pick the chemical sunscreen or the physical sunscreen? So the chemical sunscreen are the ones that the active ingredient is something like oxybenzone or avobenzone. And the physical sunscreen is the one where it's titanium or zinc. And practically Mm -hmm. speaking, um, the titanium and zinc uh, preparations are usually the ones that leave a white film on your face. And that's why um, that's kind of one of the reasons why people started using the chemical sunscreens more because it just absorbed into your skin better and didn't leave this white screen on your face. But now the new reports kind of just showed that, hey, you if I drew your blood after you put on the chemical sunscreen because it's actually absorbed by the skin, uh, they saw that it actually was absorbed into your bloodstream and they could quantify that when they drew your blood and kind of put it through an assay. But the, oh, thing wow. is, but the thing is that, well, okay, fine. So you can quantify it that it's showing up in my blood once I've applied it on my skin. 
but what does that actually mean for my health? I mean, is it damaging anything? And that's where we have no, you know, 100% data at the moment of, is it actually toxic? Because a lot of things get absorbed into your bloodstream and you're totally fine. So that's kind of where the controversy came up, that there were really good studies done that showed that, hey, it's showing up in your blood, whereas the physical blockers don't show up in your blood because by their very nature, they're not being absorbed. They're sitting on your skin. So it's kind of like comparing apples to oranges because one is not, it's, it's, it's not supposed to be absorbed. So obviously it wouldn't be absorbed. Even if it is absorbed by your skin and, and it is in your bloodstream and you can pick it up in the bloodstream, is it actually having any end organ damage? And that's where the jury's out right now. Um, so if you are somebody that really likes to be a lot more cautious, then that's fine. Go ahead and use the physical blockers, the zinc and the titanium. Um, anyway, that's what we recommend for babies because we don't want babies to have any absorption of anything. So we say go for the zinc and titanium. If you're somebody that has more sensitive skin, um, kind of get easily irritated or allergic to things easily, we always move you towards the zinc and titanium anyway. And so now mm -hmm. it's just another reason to move towards the zinc and titanium as well if you just kind of don't want want the type of sunscreen that gets absorbed because we don't know what it could be doing. So I'm not advocating that you should use chemical sunscreens or you shouldn't, but I would say that, well, we kind of know one thing, but we don't know the rest. And so at least we do know that the zinc one doesn't get absorbed. So, you know, go ahead because it's also going to be just as good at blocking the sun as the chemical one. What other oh, cool. what other skincare tips do you think people should routinely practice in addition to sunscreen all day, every day, especially so, when you travel? Yeah, so sunscreen all day, every day, even if you're not leaving your house, and then definitely a good moisturizer. And it doesn't have to be anything fancy or expensive. Just um, even plain old Vaseline or coconut oil um, or just, you know, any kind of just a facial moisturizer is fine. It's good to keep your skin nice and hydrated so it doesn't um, dry up, wrinkle up and get damaged. And the sunscreen also um, so it doesn't get damaged by the sun and that and that way you're also preventing not only wrinkles, but you're preventing skin cancer by using sunscreen every day. So main thing would be a sunscreen and moisturizer. Those are my number one and two favorite things for a regular, you know, skincare regimen. Um, and then for those of us that want to be a little bit more on the cosmetic side and want to do some kind of anti-wrinkle um, effect to our skin, it's always good to use a retinol-based product at night. So, um, and you can get these over the counter. So for example, Rock, R-O-C, Rock, um, makes these like retinol night creams. And those are great to use, um, you know, I would say from your 20s onwards, you can really just start using that at night. And it's also good for just wrinkle prevention. Nice. Mm -hmm. And as Santos mentioned, cool. we did a long time ago, used to be much more heavy on the travel. So <laughs> yeah. when the world opens back up, 
where's the next place that you want to visit? My answer might change now because it was Italy. No, no, I can still be Italy, you know, like (laughs) Italy minus, you know, SARS-CoV-2, but yeah. Yeah, so I don't know, man. I am really going to wait a nice long time (laughs) before before traveling again, so especially to to Italy, so. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. All right, well, that's it for this week. As always, we'd love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. Many thanks to Dr. Ritika for her expertise and being a good sport in general. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes along with links to any sources we used in researching this episode. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you, guys.